On this show, we talk about all topics about law enforcement, what's in the news, and the truth behind the headlines. So, uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest host for today. His name is Rick Snyder. And Rick is the president of the Indianapolis Fraternal Order of Police, representing more than 3,000 active duty and retired law enforcement officers from 10 different jurisdictions in Indiana. And uh, Rick, welcome to, uh, to the show today. Hey, man. Thanks for having us. Uh, it's always a pleasure. You know, let's talk about your role as a um, uh, as the FOP president in Indianapolis. You're in the news a lot as well, um, talking about about current topics in law enforcement. If you would just give a little background about your law enforcement career. Uh, well, I have 25 years of law enforcement experience, and uh, most of that in. Uh, street patrol investigations, as well as training and administration. And then I've been uh, the elected president of our Indianapolis Fraternal Order of Police now. Uh, I am in my eighth year of doing that, which, by the way, has been a long haul. Uh, but <laughs> but. It's, a very, uh, it's a very, it's really probably the toughest job I've done in law enforcement, but it's also by far one of the most rewarding because you have the opportunity to be working for uh, your fellow officers and their families, which is a key point that I always make. And we take that very seriously. So we have 3,000 active and retired here in the Indianapolis area, uh, multiple agencies within the county. Uh, most people think of Indianapolis being the largest one, which is true. Uh, however, there's many other agencies that we represent. And we're very active on not just the local level, but also the uh, state level. I just came from our state house working on legislation over there and then also very heavily engaged at the federal level in Washington, D.C. You know, I would like the uh, the audience to know that the Federal Order Police is the largest police uh, association union in the country, representing, I think, somewhere around 350,000 American law enforcement officers. So, Yeah, so we're at 364,000 now. Oh, we're growing. We're growing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and 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 in in all in all transparency, uh, I too am a member of the Fraternal Order of Police. Just wanted to let everybody know awesome. that. <laughs> so, um, Rick, there's been a lot of issues in law enforcement that we've been facing for years now, years, and I know that you have been very very active in supporting the uh, the law enforcement in Indianapolis. I know that there's been some of the same issues that you guys have faced with with uh, bail reform, quote unquote. I, I, I don't even like that to use that word because it's not really bail reform. It is simply another way of, of uh, the left not um, uh, having consequences for crime. But you've seen, you, you, you were personally part of the um, uh, the issues that came up after the the unrest and riots that took place in Indianapolis, and and let's talk about that for a moment. You know, we've seen um, the cities burn throughout the United States um, after George Floyd and, and other incidents. How did the leadership of the in of Indianapolis, both the police department and the government, affect the safety of the citizens there? Well, for us, we had uh, a full weekend of riots at the same time most every other major city did in the country. A lot of people don't, you know, don't think of Indianapolis in that realm, but we had over 100 businesses damaged or destroyed uh, during that time frame. We had four people that were shot in our downtown area, two of which lost their lives. Uh, our officers were under constant gunfire uh, throughout that entire weekend. 
uh, by, the, by the grace of God, we didn't have an officer shot or killed uh, during that, but unfortunately we had uh, civilians that were. In addition to that, what came out after the fact was we had over 8,000 911 calls that were made during that time frame. That's a perspective that a lot of people don't think about. So we had 8,000 calls coming in over that 48 hour period. If you do the math on that, that's a, a lot of emergency calls coming in and they weren't coming in over the 48 hours. They were in intense periods of time, which means that our emergency communication center was overran by the amount of calls coming in. And people were calling in saying things like, why aren't you getting your officers more help? Where's the state police? Where's the National Guard? What are you doing to help defend my business or my home? Um, to this day, our local officials still have yet to publish any of those 911 calls uh, or any of the radio traffic in which our officers were calling for help, pinned down by gunfire and being attacked by rioters uh, throughout the streets. So it's still a very sensitive subject. Um, we still have many officers who frankly are still struggling uh, with the aftermath of that, not only because of what they know could have been lost, including their lives, but also the fact that our downtown fell. Um, and it was not as a result of the actions of our officers, but their hands were literally tied by governmental officials. Um, and they were cut off at the knees in terms of being able to protect our community. And as you know, any officer, that's why we do what we do is to provide uh, protection and defend the defenseless. And uh, we were unable to do that. Uh, we, we literally had officers that were going to business owners for weeks after the fact, personally apologizing to them uh, because they felt so bad about what took place, but they just couldn't do anything about it. Now, what was interesting is that when government officials made the change for law enforcement officers to go back to normal procedures in terms of preventing these types of events from occurring, um, all of that went away. And so it begs the question, what was really going on in all that? And I, I still talk about this. You can't get two politicians, even of the same party, to agree about anything. But how did every major city in the United States of America go up in flames at the exact same time and in the exact same way uh, with officers being uh, restrained from being able to do anything to prevent it? And that, you know, and that's, that brings up the first um, article that I want to bring up today. Because Black Lives Matter was uh, in, inherently uh, involved in the, um, the, de the damages and the death and destruction that took place all over the city. They were inciting it with their rhetoric. And, uh, um, there, and, and recently, just uh, several days ago, uh, there was a Washington, D.C. police officer shot um, mm. while, while investigating a suspicious person. And um, Black Lives Matter came out with, uh, with um, deep criticism of the way that the media portrayed the police as being heroic. And it's, it was absolutely shocking that, um, uh, what they said. Um, so in, in response, police groups, uh, the, 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 the uh, headline of this article is police groups slam Black Lives Matter chapter for complaining shot police officers treated as heroes. Um, police unions are slamming Black Lives Matter chapter in Washington, D.C. After the group complained, the cops who are shot in the line of duty are automatically treated as heroes. 
Shortly after Metropolitan Police Department officer was shot in D.C.'s Petworth neighborhood Sunday, Black Lives Matter D.C. took the opportunity to promote its at Stop MPD campaign and warn against the spread of copaganda. How's that for a term, Rick? Copaganda. I've never heard that. And they went on to say, quote, this is the point we've been making for months, Black Lives Matter tweeted. Look at the reaction and coverage tonight. Tearjerker press conferences and proclamations of heroes coming soon. Imagine if people knew these folks' name. Being black in D.C. is more dangerous than any job. So um, if the uh, description of the stop at stop MPD campaign on the group's website claims that D.C. is, quote, an occupied police state, unquote, that was, quote, never meant to, to protect black people, Policing and the system under which police work exists is bound to the enslavement, degradation, and murder of black people and was never meant to protect us, but instead to exploit our bodies and labor to fill prisons and bolster capitalism. No amount of good deed videos or feel-good videos can deny the truth. No dancing, ice cream peddling, dance videos, barbecue eating, copaganda can change that. Now, interesting that police uh, groups across the nation uh, are slamming Black Lives Matter. They finally have the guts to stand up. For instance, Houston Police Officers Union President, it's all about money for them. And uh, this, this is interesting that there is finally some pushback from the, the uh, police unions, which have been pretty much silent in their criticism of Black Lives Matter. And uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think first and foremost, one of the things that I'm always an advocate of is let let folks talk. Let these organizations talk and share what they really believe. Uh, that was part of the problem before is that people kept trying to shut down the conversation and shut down the things that they were saying. I just, I'm just a firm believer in let them talk because the more they talk, this point right here, uh, demonstrates it, the more people get to see what some of these organizations truly believe. You know, you, you listen to the rhetoric and what you find is that as you dig deeper into these organizations, you fi- find that they support deconstructing the system. They're unabashed about that, which is fine. I welcome the debate and the discussion. What I know for a fact and what we are now seeing, um, you know, after quite some time, is that residents are coming to the realization that these these philosophies are not only radical, but they're dangerous and people are dying as a result of them. Uh, you know, there's, I always say there's, there's <laughs> gets a lot of attention, but I think there's many points that we actually have agreement on. We're just seeing them from different perspectives, such as they're absolutely right. When it comes to violence towards uh, uh, communities of color, they are disproportionately suffering victimization uh, through violence in their cities, but it's not at the hand of the officers. The officers, in fact, are the only other ones in the neighborhoods 24 hours a day trying to protect them. Uh, what they're finding, just like in Indianapolis, uh, for us in our city, three out of every four uh, murder victims are our fellow black neighbors. And that number repeats itself year in and year out. And in Indianapolis, like every other major city, most every other major city across the country, we are seeing sustained back-to-back years of record-breaking levels of homicide. Now for across the the country, that really has peaked for the last two years. In Indianapolis, that's been the case for the last seven years. Uh, 
And from 2019 to 2000 and the end of 2021, so the past two years where we have seen this uh, robust push, if you will, for these activist agendas, we in Indianapolis have seen a 59% jump in homicides. We went from 171 homicides in 2019 to 271 homicides by the end of 2020. How does that happen? And again, you see it in most every major city across the country. And what you find is it's as a result of this revolving door of criminal justice, which is recycling uh, repeat violent offenders right back into the neighborhood with little or no consequences or accountability. Well, what happens then? That emboldens those repeat offenders. They then re-victimize uh, folks in the community, oftentimes, as we're seeing disproportionately, our fellow black neighbors are in communities of color. So when these organizations tell us what lives matter, I would contend to you that those lives matter just as much as any other. And uh, to the extent that our officers are willing to lay down their lives to protect them, which is what happened in Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, it's an unfortunate uh, set of circumstances where you hear these messages. But I think it's important for the community to hear those messages. And as they hear them, what we're seeing is residents and communities across the country are fleeing from their position um, and the philosophies that they espouse. Now, as we see the degrading of law enforcement across the country, when I say degrading, I mean uh, not just the, the physical degrading where, where police agencies are losing personnel, not right. being able to recruit personnel, but also the degrading of the efficiency of the system uh, with, uh, with the, uh, uh, you know, the low bail, no bail push, uh, the lack of mm -hmm. prosecutions, the lack of, of, uh, of backing up of the office of the of the profession of law enforcement by the professional political elite, if you will. Um, this is legitimately affecting the very same people that they claim to be protecting from the police. That's that is, to me is the irony here. The 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 uh, these activists, these radical activists, Black Lives Matter, other groups that is, that are associated with them are ostensibly protecting the black community from the police. When in fact, it is it is just the opposite. The police are the only ones that are affecting the black community from the criminal element, and that's what it is. It's a there is a there is a a, a predatory element of people, gang members, for, for instance. I know that Indianapolis has a severe gang problem, and yet is there any concerted effort by the, uh, by the, the political leadership to allow the police to deal effectively with the gang members? Well, the issue really is this. Evil will always follow the path of least resistance, always. And so when communities intentionally uh, destabilize their systems for ensuring justice for all residents in the community, um, those who are the most marginalized suffer the most. Now, the other thing that I'll point out is the black community is not a monolithic group, right? They don't, it's not like everyone who is of color thinks the same and it's being proven day in and day out where we're seeing vast numbers of folks of color distancing themselves from radical agendas uh, such as this organization, 
and saying, hey, they don't represent me. They don't represent what I believe. And they don't, uh, they're not doing anything to protect my life. Now, if folks want to talk about accountability for law enforcement and use of force incidents, which, by the way, are really uh, uh, responses to resistance, um, uh, I'm all for that. Because here's what we find is when you actually dig into the facts, and by the way, facts matter. When you dig into the facts, you find that our law enforcement profession is, is uh, at levels of superb performance compared to any other type of profession as it relates to um, harm or tragic outcomes. Now, listen, here's the key fact. Um, sometimes uh, violence has to be confronted with violence, but it has to be lawful violence that is within the confines of the Constitution. And that's why we support constitutional policing that ensures the rights, the equal rights of everyone. And so, but when you dig into the facts, these organizations aren't looking for that. In fact, they need tragedies to occur to drive the agenda. The problem is it's the very folks that they, uh, they portray that they're representing that are the ones that are being slaughtered in our communities. Right, and, you exactly. know, um, most of the violence in any community is uh, typically the same race on the same race. That goes for white on white crime, Latino on Latino crime, and black on black crime. So when you see that, you've got to say, listen, <coughs> if we truly love our neighbor um, and care about lives, we should care just as much about that suspect or that offender. And what I know for a fact as being a practitioner in law enforcement like you have been, is that when you hold folks accountable for prior bad acts, you can intervene in their lives and prevent them from committing further bad acts. So that's why we always say you're in a crisis in every major city. Intervention in the middle of a crisis is prevention. And that's why it's important that we hold violent offenders, repeat violent offenders accountable. And in doing so, we will save lives. You know, um, in Baltimore, uh, which, it, which is in complete free fall when it comes down to the uh, out of control violent crime there, the people who actually live there during neighborhood meetings and such are begging the police to come back, if you will. That's right. They're begging the, the, the police to, to stop the drug dealing on their corner, to beg the police to do their jobs effectively, and yet you have still have the political leadership and the police leadership not allowing the police to police. Are you finding that in your city that there is uh, a movement in the black community to invite police back to policing? Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, 
and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. This is not a fight of Republican versus Democrat. It's not a fight of rich versus poor, old versus young, man versus woman, gay versus straight. It's not a fight of black lives, blue lives, Hispanic lives, or white lives. This is a battle of good versus evil. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Are you finding that in your city that there is uh, a movement in the black community to invite police back to policing? Absolutely. When you get past the sound bites, the talking <laughs> points, and the made-for-TV um, protests, uh, and you talk to folks, residents in the neighborhoods, I always remind our officers, don't forget about the people behind the blinds. What do I mean by that? The people that peek out the blinds and they see you out there, they need you out there, they want you out there, but they can't necessarily come out and, uh, and make that clear to everyone, including you. Well, don't forget about those folks. They are the ones that you're out there working for and that you're protecting. They're the ones that have become imprisoned in their own homes. You know, we have a system of government right now that is taking this radical approach. And as a result, they're, they've created this revolving door to where the, the violent offenders are cycling right back into the neighborhoods. And the only ones living behind bars are our residents. Bars so on let, their windows. Let me, let me stop you there. Let me, hey. stop you, let me stop you there for just a minute, because this is a really, this is a really critical piece here. With the, with the erosion of the criminal justice system, this, this has the unintended, unintended consequences of making people fearful. I mean, there was, there was already a great deal of fear in, in, in pretty much every community when it comes down to reporting crime and, and actually you know, coming forth as a witness to crime and cooperating with law enforcement. What we have seen now with with the this this uh, sociological um, uh, maelstrom against law enforcement, um, this is now trickling down and infecting the as this population with with a fear of of even becoming involved in their own protection by cooperating with the police. How dangerous well, is this? That's the very issue. And so you said unintentional consequences. Uh, I push back on that. It's intentional consequences. This is a programmed philosophy. Uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to be on Newsmax recently, Fox News National. This is what I've been saying. Listen, this stuff that you're seeing, like the this radical DA in Manhattan that's saying, hey, we're not going to hold people accountable for crimes of violence and all these other things. Listen, people watch that and they say, man, that's crazy. Thank God I don't live in New York. What I'm trying to convey to people and in the fraternal order of police has been as well is listen, this is happening already in every major city in the country. This is a programmed philosophy with the intentional consequence of breaking the system. If you break it, you can remake it. Remake it with what? Listen to what people are saying. They're telling you, they're telling all of us what they want to do once they have the opportunity to do that. In 2019, before all this really went off the cliff, 
President Trump uh, invited 20 uh, FOP presidents from the 20 major cities in the country to the White House for a sit down meeting in which he wanted to know what's going on in our major cities. We are starting to see levels of violence surge all across the country. And this is what he said. He said, take a good look around the room. You don't see chiefs of police. You don't see sheriffs. You don't see mayors. I want to hear from the rank and file officers who are the subject matter experts. What is happening? This is what we told him. And when we left, I said this outside the West Wing in a press conference. We have every major city have politicians in place that are taking steps to decriminalize the criminals at the same time to depolice the police. And it's a recipe for disaster and it's resulting in re-victimizing our victims. To your point, the victims then see why on earth would I cooperate with the police? Why would I call the police and then provide witness testimony and then come to a trial all during which I know the suspect isn't being held in jail. They're coming right back out into the neighborhood. And who do you think they're going to come looking for? They come out looking for retribution. And, and I tell people, I tell people all the time, I cannot blame folks for not wanting to cooperate with the police. But again, it's intentional because to your point, what it does is it destroys trust and respect for the law enforcement officers because we're the most visible representation of government, right? We wear these uniforms, we're in big bright cars that stand out from everybody else. We're the most visible representation of government out on the front lines of service to the community. So when the backside of the system, the courts, the prosecutors, the system itself, the jails, when they don't function correctly, when they fall apart and don't uphold their end of the deal, that destroys the trust and respect for the officers because people associate, hey, I called uh, Officer Rick, when somebody was committing a crime here, he came out and arrested him, but he let him right back out. I'm not calling him anymore because he can't keep me safe. Exactly. That's it, the unfortunate tragedy. That's why officers are beside themselves with this and why we're fighting so hard to restore. You know, people talk about restorative justice. Well, we need to restore the justice system, get back to the basics. Because, see, this is what people, what people in these organizations do. They pull out pieces of the system so that it has a catastrophic failure and collapses on itself. Then when it does, they say, see, that doesn't work. No, you broke it. It was working until you broke it. And so if we would just get back to basics, do what we know is wor that works, hold violent offenders accountable, we'll start to see these numbers come down and in turn, we'll save some lives. And, you know, it's not like the blueprint hasn't already been uh, yeah. created for we're that. We're not talking about reinventing the will. Right, exactly. Well, and, and why we're talking about this this topic, um, we recently had the, the tragic murder of a New York City police officer and the yeah. grave wounding of another in the same incident. In addition to that, <coughs> excuse me, in addition to that, two other officers in January were also shot in New York City. So we're talking about, um, you know, a significant number of officers uh, who have faced who have faced uh, you know critical injury by gunfire now yeah. this murder of this young officer rookie officer he's only been uh, been on the department for a year tragic tragic stuff and yet the governor of the state of of new york the governor in her statement about this this tragic murder didn't blame the criminal instead she blames quote a shot from an illegal gun for the killing of the officer. 
She can't even bring herself to say that this criminal predator who murdered this young officer is the one responsible. She has to follow the political rhetoric of, of uh, New York instead of putting the blame where the blame belongs on a criminal, on a predator. And yet they want to push this, this political talking point and then ask for help from Washington in the illegal gun market. I mean, it is absolutely absurd. And yet this is part and parcel of what this discussion is when we talk about how the political leadership of this country is simply acquiescing to the political left and the and the uh, and the uh, radical agendas that are being put forth by groups like Black Lives Matter. Well, another classic example. None of that is by accident. It's by design. It's created chaos. And you know, you have these politicians. I always say this: be very aware of politicians who now suddenly act like they're concerned about attacks on our officers. Facts matter. Last year, we had 346 officers shot in the line of duty, 63 of which lost their lives. We had a 115% increase in ambush style attacks upon our officers. That means that we were averaging an officer shot in the line of duty once every 25 hours last year. Where did you hear them? Where was the outcry? Where were they pleading for help and their concern for these lives of the officers? They weren't. In fact, they needed that tragedy to occur, just like this one with these two young, brave officers, so that they can then drive a wedge in between the community and the, re the officers and the residents that they serve, and then drive their political agenda related to guns. We keep saying this. This is not gun violence. It's not knife violence. It's not a car violence like we saw in the parade incident. It is criminal violence. And it's criminals that you have to hold accountable. When they want to blame an inanimate object, that is simply to drive a political agenda. Just today in Indianapolis, we just released body-worn camera footage uh, from an incident uh, earlier uh, at the end of last year in which two of our officers, same kind of a deal, were attacked, were ambushed by a suspect. In this one, he stabbed both of them with a knife. He stabbed one through the uh, throat and another one in the chest just above their heart, okay? Both of them survived, thank God. They were able to stop the attack and then they provided medical treatment to the suspect who had just stabbed them while they were getting medical treatment as well, okay? No one ever talked about the knife in that. No one ever said, oh, we've got to get a handle on all these knives that are floating around in our kitchens and restaurants. They, uh, but they also didn't talk about the criminal suspect. This was a criminal suspect, by the way, who was out on a, on a low bail from a charitable bail organization, which was playing a role in destabilizing the system and you have this tragic outcome. So that's why we say enough is enough. I think it's incumbent upon us to always push back. Every time a politician starts talking about the object, you ought to push pause, see what's going on, and say, if you truly believe that, then let's analyze the crimes involving those objects. How many gun charges were dismissed, pled down, no jail time that occurred leading up to this? You'll find that those numbers are staggering and they don't want you to know them. You know, let's veer off this for just a moment because I want to, I want to talk about an incident that like you just described. We, we Our officers are trained and armed to deal with deadly force situations. Uh, that, is, that, is, that is one of the most uh, 
basic training issues that, that officers face from the time they, they join the academy to the time that their in-service training continues. Yeah. Um, so these officers were armed with, with, with guns, and yet they were both stabbed. We've seen this been taking place. I watched several videos just the other day on another news show talking about this very, very topic. Why aren't our cops defending themselves at the appropriate moments and instead winding up with serious injuries when they could have been stopped um, prior to those injuries? Well, I think it goes back to some changes in philosophies and perhaps some changes in training. Now, we have some of the best training in the country in Indianapolis, and we don't talk enough about it. And we, we spend a lot of time not just on the range doing shooting exercises, but also de-escalation exercises and avoiding the use of force. Um, you know, I'm always quick to point out it's force that may result in death. And sometimes we keep saying deadly force as though that's the intentional, that's the outcome we're seeking. Nothing could be further from the truth. But I think there's a lot to be said. And I'd like to see some more scientific study done on if we see any kind of um, compromising of safety standards and safety practices for officers in conjunction with the use of the body-worn cameras. We're advocates of the cameras. My only fear at, is and has always been, uh, do you fall into the trap of officers starting to play to the camera or compromise their safety to get a perspective from that camera on the situation? And I'm also a street survival kid, right? I was brought up on street survival training. Our good friend, Dave Smith, you know, well known for always watch the hands. And, you know, I think we've gotten away in the profession from keeping a good strong, I'm not speaking in this incident because it, it, this didn't play a role in there, but you see in many incidents where officers are more reluctant to still provide that good command presence and direct commands to people, including getting their hands out and exposed to where they can see them. We're seeing so often that officers are reluctant to provide that direction um, immediately when it's needed. And as a result, weapons are retrieved and then suddenly thrust upon the officers. This incident in Indianapolis, that didn't play the role. That wouldn't have made a difference. But we are seeing that in many other situations. And I think it's worthy of discussion. I think as a profession, if other people won't study it and take a look at it, we need to do that. Um, but, and I think what we're gonna find is get back to basics, get back to basics that have proven to save lives of our law enforcement officers. Well, I, I agree with you, uh, but I, I believe that, that, that what is taking place in, around the country with the anti-law enforcement um, movement, with uh, the uh, prosecutors who, are, who seem to be more interested in prosecuting a police officer like Kim Potter, which, I, which in my estimation was a, was a complete travesty of justice. And yet they don't want to hold the criminals accountable, accountable for, their, for their actions. But I think that all of this is playing a tremendous role in the reduction of officer safety because our cops are hesitant to use the proper amount of force at the appropriate time. And that, in, in actuality, escalates the problem instead of de-escalating with the proper use of force. They're, they're afraid to go hands-on. They're afraid of 15 seconds of videotape destroying their careers. And this is something that I hear constantly um, it, from officers from around the country. Do you not agree that that's playing a major role in this? 
I think absolutely it does. I mean, you know, a lot of people talk about the Ferguson effect playing a role in officers pulling back or being reluctant to take action. Uh, we have always referred to that as the Mosby effect, which was the predatory prosecutions that were occurring in Baltimore. You've seen how that's worked out too. But, um, you know, uh, one of the key things with that is it definitely raises this question, this, this issue of officers questioning or second guessing their tactics that they know they need to take. And as we know, you're dealing with fractions of a second uh, that can have deadly consequences. I think the the other attribute is uh, we've also done things to telegraph that to our officers, uh, such as an over-reliance on electronic control devices. Um, you know, when tasers came out, people thought those were the, the silver uh, solution that were going to solve all of our problems and result in all less lethal outcomes. And nothing could be further from the truth. They're a useful tool. But even that company, I believe, and many other companies would be the first to tell you that they have failure rates and other things. But what did we see? We saw police departments that removed batons off the duty belts of our officers because they said we don't need those anymore because we have electronic control devices. But the, the average citizen resident, they forget that in most police agencies on a use of force spectrum, continuum, whatever you want to call it, that the electronic control device is actually a higher level of force than the use of the baton. What's that mean? It means that oftentimes our officers are going skipping hands-on control, baton opportunities, going straight to the electronic control device or nothing at all, and then they're suffering deadly consequences for it. And it's not just the officers, but the suspects as well. If we can de-escalate it and prevent it from ever getting to that point, you also avoid um, deadly outcomes for suspects as we respond to their resistance. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> you know, as we're, we're talking about the, you know, the, kind of the, the deep policing aspect, we, we saw in New York City under de Blasio, who was about as anti-law enforcement as they come, uh, he disbanded one of the most effective police units that was actually uh, effective in controlling violent crime, the plainclothes unit. And, um, you know, the, the police agency uh, of New York decried it. They said this is going to lead to more and more um, uh, violent crime. And they were absolutely right. Well, now the mayor of New York City, the new mayor, uh, Adams, is just announced that they are reinstating this police unit, the plainclothes unit. Uh, albeit they are going to make some modifications as to their tactics, but they are bringing it back. Now, I, I view that as, a, as something positive. However, the, the, just adding the police part of this issue and the plainclothes, which will no doubt make a bunch more gun arrests and violent crime arrests, how effective is that going to be, though, when you have a district attorney who was elected on the platform of not prosecuting anybody for for the, for their crimes, including, I mean, it's almost it's almost uh, unbelievable, and and I mean that in the, true, in the truest sense of the word when he said that they weren't going to uh, prosecute somebody for armed robbery if they stuck a gun in your face, demanded money, and they got a hundred bucks and they didn't shoot you. In that case, he he views that as a petty larceny. I mean, it's madness. Yeah. So even though you have the reinstatement of the plainclothes unit, 
How do you think this is really going to affect the uh, the the safety of the citizens in New York? Yeah, well, you have to have both sides of the equation working at the same time, right? So the best case scenario you have, if you have half of the equation being the prosecutor side of this in the courts, not holding people accountable for those crimes of violence, the best outcome you're going to have is just an interruption of violence, possibly that night, right? You might see some reductions only because you were able to intervene, separate the violent offender from the ability to commit crime that night, but they're going to be right back out and, and going at it. You know, the issue with plainclothes units is it's a proven um, step that works in law enforcement and works in public safety. It's ironic, the very people that talk about how we shouldn't have folks in plainclothes capacities and all these other things are surrounded by plainclothes protection details <laughs> that the taxpayers are paying for. Why do you put your protection details in suits instead of full uniforms so that everybody can see who they are and what they have? You do that for a reason because there's effectiveness in the concealment of that and there's also an appearance factor. But here, here's what's important to remember. You gotta do all of it, right? People forget the basics like lighting is the number one prevention tool for crime and violence. Lighting is. It's a pretty cheap alternative. The next level though is a high visibility presence of law enforcement officers, uniformed officers, patrol vehicles, all those other things. But the other component to that is the mo most more covert uh, presence of officers so that the offenders don't know always who they're dealing with or when the police are coming. And again, if you don't believe that that is effective or appropriate, get rid of your plainclothes protection details and move away from that. Uh, but they're not going to do that because, again, it's not about what they're talking about, right? It's about appearances. It's about agendas. Um, and it leads to anarchy and a lot of people losing their lives. So I think it's a step in the right direction to bring it back. Um, but unless they get that fixed, that unless you close the revolving door, none of that improves. And that's where a mayor could say, well, I don't control that. You don't, but you control the bully pulpit for the city. The mayor of New York City has one of the largest, if not the largest, local bully pulpits in the country. Use it. Point fingers at this situation and say, we've got a revolving door. We've got to close it. People got to get around a table. I'm convening the meeting because it's my residents that are being victimized. And when one starts to do that, the others will start to follow. You know, one of the things that, that I find really disturbing is the, uh, the sheep mentality uh, that that I've observed in the, many of these cities and these elections, um, the the election of of Mayor Adams came about because he vowed to to help make the city safer. Because mm -hmm. of course we know that crime is probably one of the number one concerns of the of the people who live there. I literally had three conversations last week with different people who live in the city and was told exactly the same thing. They don't go out at night anymore. They're scared in the, it, this is the city of Manhattan, right? We're, we're not talking about some, you know, uh, some, some, uh, you know, crime infested neighborhood that's, that's been historically dangerous. We're talking about, about mainstream New York city and they are afraid to leave their homes. So you had the election of Mayor Adams. And at the same time, this, this guy Bragg gets elected by 60 points. 
And he didn't make any bones about what his agenda was. I'm to me, I can't I can't understand it. Do you have a, I, I mean, I'm interested in your thought process on this. Um, you know, there's there was always that that saying that, you know, you get the kind of government that you deserve. Is that what's happening here? Well, I think part of the issue, a big part of the issue is you don't have any countervailing points that are being made. You need some um, uh, folks to step forward, maybe not professional politicians, but folks who are legitimately concerned about their community who uh, expend some political capital and demonstrate some political fortitude in speaking to counterpoints to what's being said. Again, I always say, let them talk, hear them out, hear their points. But once you do, then you put forward a balance to that. Uh, we're not finding that. But, you know, I, I asked a question a couple of times on these national discussions, which is who's behind all of that? I don't know, Mr. Bragg, but uh, I don't believe that he came up with all of that on his own. I deal with prosecutors in our city and other cities, and I don't believe they come up with it all on their own. Otherwise, how do they all come up with the same philosophy? There's, it's just improbable. Um, and, and for it to be that radical, it's even more improbable that they all come up with that independent and on their own. So who is behind that and who is funding that? Who's driving the messaging that they're all parroting from one another across the country? You can watch it go across the country like a wave. And then um, the, the not just the talking points, but the marketing of it. Who's behind that? Who's funding that? And that will tell us a lot about what's going on because then you can see what their ultimate agendas are. Well, I was just uh, I was just uh, given some documents that um, that indicated pretty strongly who's behind it. Uh, I got, was given some documents about the election of George Gascone in Los Angeles, who is as radical or more radical than Bragg and and Chesa Bowden in San Francisco. And George Soros was name was uh, on the dotted line for giving him more than a million dollars in just free advertising. In marketing, the just what you said. Who's marketing this? And and the, the all roads seem to lead to Rome in the in the identification of George Soros as being uh, one of the major uh, funders of all of these district attorney elections that are taking place. So that begs the question: How is a, a, I think he's ninety one years old? How is this ninety one year old? socialist become so effective in the in the degrading of the criminal justice system in America and what is his ultimate goal is it the destruction of America and I have to say it's looking pretty much like that to me well again I just listen you know I think any officer is just an observer right and you just listen and watch and see the commonalities and what's being spoken, but also the organizations that are lining up behind these agendas. In Indianapolis, we saw it, and I know we've seen it in every other major city. You saw strong signage, uh, banners that were being held up, uh, not just a specific, of a specific organization talking about what lives matter, but also political organizations that said that they were the party of socialism, socialists, party of liberation. Well, what are those organizations about? What's frustrating for me, like you and many other folks, is that uh, we all have uh, relatives, grandparents who fought a war 
to put down socialism and in turn communism. And uh, again, let's have the discussion. Do, is that really what people want? Because the good news is you just got to focus on outcomes. In our major cities where we're seeing crime surge, focus on the outcomes, work backwards off of that and see what led to that. But in the, also in these discussions where we're talking about ideologies, look at their outcomes historically and work backwards off of that. What you're going to find is they fail and they don't work. And quite frankly, they aren't about uh, protecting the individual. They're about protecting an elite class of people at the expense of the individuals who make up a group as a whole. So again, when we talk about what matters and what doesn't matter, I think most people catch on pretty quickly um, that that is a challenge that we've got to overcome. So it's going to take folks stepping up and speaking back with truth uh, and with facts. And again, uh, it seems invariable, just like a, an officer going down an alleyway, when you shine a light on the situation, the evil ones tend to flee. You know, as, we, um, as we're watching this, this play out around the country, um, I, I can't help but wonder about how this is affecting the mental and emotional health of our law enforcement officers. You know that my organization, The Wounded Blue, is, uh, is, is a national charitable organization that reaches out to injured officers, whether those injuries are physical or psychological and emotional. And I see literally every day that the, the, the peer team of my organization, all made up of officers who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up and screwed over. Um, more and more people who are in the profession are either leaving the profession or trying to cope with the psychological and the physical traumas. How are you seeing in Indianapolis um, this affecting the mental health of your cops? Uh, tremendously. Uh, it's, a, it's a significant impact on the psyche, but also on the spirit of the American law enforcement officer. I know you can attest to this. I put the spirit of the American law enforcement officer up against just about anything else, anyone else, because I know that the, uh, the police officer is going to win every time because we're in a situation where we can't call 911. There's, there's no one else coming. It's, it is only us. We are the front line, but we are also the final line in separating good from evil. And so what is torching the psyche of our officers isn't the violence that we're facing. It's the lack of support, accountability, and quite frankly, not just our community, but our officers that are being gaslighted by uh, politicians that are pointing at things and, and calling them um, as, as they want them to be rather than what they are. When three out of every four murder victims in my city are my fellow black neighbors, and yet you berate the officers who are trying to defend, protect those lives, give voice to the victims, and tell them that they're the problem, uh, that, that's not only confusing, but it, it absolutely compromises the sanctity of what we do. And worse yet is when we see politicians getting away from that. Now, here's the situation. We're seeing that pendulum swing back, right? Because now these corporations that have invest, invested hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars into just one organization or this one agenda are finding that as you pull back the curtains a little further, it's really nothing about what they're talking about. And we're seeing corporations now that are pushing back because they are being victimized by folks committing crimes upon them with no accountability. 
When exactly, you see these exactly. prosecutors across the city saying a thousand dollars or less in theft is we're not charging it. Then you see these companies saying, whoa, 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 time out. Uh, I'm getting ripped off. I'm losing. My, I can't run a business like this. Well, no right. kidding. And I'm going to have oh, to. I'm well, going to have to. Your life. Rick, I'm going to have to stop you there because we're running out of time. Um, no I have one more segment that is very important where we where we uh, memorialize the uh, the lives of the officers who died in the line of duty called End of Watch. But I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on The Voice for American Law Enforcement, being my co-host today. I'm going to have you on again today. You're a phenomenal guest and uh, you, your knowledge of law enforcement is and dedication is incredible. So thank you so much, Rick Snyder, FOP president of Indianapolis for joining me today here on The Voice for American Law Enforcement. Thanks. God bless. As I said, uh, we're uh, towards the end of our show. Um, we uh, memorialize those officers who have paid the ultimate sacrifice and given their lives in the line of duty. The first I'm going to talk to you about is police officer Jason Rivera, New York City Police Department. Police officer Jason Rivera was shot and killed when he and two other officers responded to a domestic violence call in an apartment on uh, West uh, 135th Street in Harlem. When the officers arrived at the apartment about 6.30 p.m., they spoke with the suspect's mother. Officer Rivera and another officer went to the rear apartment of the apartment to interview the suspect while the third officer stayed with the mother. As the officers approached the door to the room where the suspect was in, the suspect opened the door and immediately began to fire at the officers, striking Officer Rivera and one of his partners. The third officer returned fire, wounding the suspect. Officer Rivera and second wounded officer were both transported to Harlem Hospital in grave condition. Officer Rivera succumbed to his wounds a short time later. He had served with the New York City Police Department for just about a year. Police Officer Jason Rivera, New York City Police Department, end of watch, Friday, January 21st, 2022. The next is School Resource Officer Johnny Patterson, Lee County School District Police, Mississippi. School Resource Officer Johnny Patterson succumbed to injuries sustained on January 13th when he was struck by a car while directing traffic in front of Shannon Primary School. He was directing traffic at the end of the school day when a vehicle struck the back of his patrol car, which then pushed into him. He was transported to the hospital where he remained on life support until his organs were donated on January 21st. He also served as an assistant chief of the Verona police and served in law enforcement for 28 years. School resource officer Johnny Patterson, Lee County School District, Mississippi, end of watch Friday, January 21st, 2022. Sergeant Ramon Gutierrez, Harris County Sheriff's Office, Texas. Sergeant Ramon Gutierrez was struck and killed by a drunk driver on the East Beltway feeder road at 1 a.m. He was providing an escort for a permitted heavy load and was directing traffic while blocking an exit ramp. The woman drove around his police motorcycle, struck him before fleeing the scene. Another deputy stopped the woman a short distance later, placed her under arrest. She was charged with intoxication assault against a police officer and failure to stop and render aid. Uh, Sergeant Gutierrez has served with the Harris County Sheriff's Office for 20 years. Sergeant Ramon Gutierrez, Harris County Sheriff's Office, Texas, end of watch Monday, January 24th, 2022. Special Agent Anthony Salas, Texas Department of Public Safety Criminal Investigations Division. 
Special Agent Anthony Salas was killed in an accident near Eagle Pass, Texas, while conducting joint tactical operations with the United States Border Patrol. He was flown to University Hospital where he succumbed to his injuries. He had uh, served with the Marine Corps and the Texas Department of Public Safety for nine years. Special Agent Anthony Salas, De Texas Department of Public Safety. End of watch Saturday, January 22nd, 2022. And Corporal Charles Galloway, Harris County Constable's Office, Precinct 5 in Texas. Corporal Charles Galloway was shot and killed while conducting a traffic stop. 2 a.m. The driver of the vehicle he stopped exited the car and opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle. The man who then fled the scene and remains at large. Corporal Galloway served with the Harris County Constable's Office, Precinct 5, for 12 years. He is survived by his daughter and sister. Corporal Charles Galloway, Harris County Constable's Office, Precinct 5, end of watch, Sunday, January 23rd, 2022. I ask you for your thoughts and prayers for the family and loved ones of these men and who gave their lives in the line of duty. Now, as we say goodbye for this, this episode of The Voice for American Law Enforcement, I urge you to support The Wounded Blue. Go to thewoundedblue.org and see who we are and what we do. These men and women who are serving uh, in the 18,000 different police agencies across this country need your help. Uh, they need the support of the American people. This is a way to do it in a very effective way. So go to thewoundedblue.org. I'm Randy Sutton. You can find me on Facebook at either The Wounded Blue or The Voice for American Law Enforcement. You can also feel free to contact me if you want to support law enforcement at randy at thewoundedblue.org. So I am going to say goodbye for this episode. Thank you for joining me. And this is The Voice for American Law Enforcement. I'm your host, Randy Sutton. Thanks again. Thank you.